Let us pray. Oh God, by your Holy Spirit, tell us what we need to do and show us what we need to hear to obey Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Last week, we left Jesus still dripping from his baptism with the voice of God ringing in his ears and ours. You are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. Luke then tells us that Jesus is now 30 years old as he begins his public ministry. After giving us his version of Jesus's genealogy, Luke tells us that Jesus is both filled with the Holy Spirit and driven by that same spirit into the wilderness, where he goes without food for 40 days. As that time winds down, the devil goads Jesus to swap all that he has been born to do for a loaf of bread, power over human kingdoms, and a chance to see if angels will indeed swoop in if he takes a leap off the top of the temple. Of course, Jesus resists each offer and clarifies who and whose he actually is. Luke then tells us when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. And that brings us to our reading for this morning. Let us all listen as I read from Luke 4, verses 14 through 30. Let us listen for the word of God. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. They said, is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, doctor, cure yourself. And you will say, do hear also in your hometown the things that we have heard you did at Capernaum. And he said, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But the truth is, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a severe famine over all the land. Yet Elijah was sent to none of them except to a widow at Zarephath in Sidon. 
There were also many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. When they heard this, all in the synagogue were filled with rage. They got up, drove him out of the town, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they might hurl him off the cliff. But Jesus passed through the midst of them and went on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You are invited to pause for a moment for prayer and reflection on the text. Amen. As many of you know, one of my sanity-saving practices these days is to go for a run. Not super speedy or terribly long, but a run to shut out the world for a while and get my feet moving, my heart rate elevated, and the endorphins flowing. I've not always gone running on purpose. In high school, I played soccer, and running was our punishment when we were late or not doing what our coach wanted us to do. That said, I think I knew that some running on purpose would benefit my endurance on the soccer field, so at some point I must have asked a friend who ran as easily as he blinked for some advice. I don't remember much about the conversation other than what he said about my hands, my fists. I guess I was clenching them pretty tightly, so he suggested that I imagine carrying a baby bird in each hand. To carry the baby bird safely, you, of course, have to hold it tightly enough not to let it fall and loosely enough not to harm its delicate frame. Hold on loosely, I tell myself, or try to tell myself when the hill seems too steep and my legs grow weary. Hold on loosely. And yes, on occasion, that mantra leads me to hum a song with the same title, a song that dates back to my years in middle school. And in a flash, I picture my 15-year-old self trying to hold on loosely to the pretend baby bird in my hands as I pound the pavement of the hills of my childhood neighborhood or take laps around the soccer field. I wonder what song Jesus is humming or might be humming as he makes his way back into Nazareth. While he's already been preaching and teaching in other synagogues and other towns, it's still very early in his ministry. It's not been that long since he left the wilderness, so I imagine he could be looking forward to the taste of Mary's cooking and perhaps the familiar smells of Joseph's workshop. We're not told how long he's been in Nazareth at this point, just that part of his routine while there is going to the synagogue. It's the synagogue where he's been raised, hearing the scriptures read and debated aloud, he may have been one to read from the scrolls on other Sabbath days previously, but his reading today is different. Before this, even with the songs of angels and the laughter of shepherds greeting his birth three short decades before, 
He's been known as Mary and Joseph's boy. The one who worried them sick when he lingered back in the temple 18 years before. The one who likely played with their kids. The one who skinned his knees and laughed and cried and slept and ate just like those children did. But today is different. His calling and his identity have been confirmed through his baptism and his time in the wilderness. And that persistent Holy Spirit draws him ever onward into his life's work of ushering in the kingdom of God. The very kingdom this and every community has been longing for. As we heard, Jesus stands to read and turns to Isaiah. The portion he selects come from what scholars refer to as third Isaiah, the portion written after the exile in Babylon. You may recall that the people of ancient Israel who return home actually return home to the home of their great-grandparents and their parents. Likely the returning exiles have heard the stories of what home was like before the temple fell, but the homeland they return to is not the one their relatives left. Other peoples have moved in. It has become their home too. And Isaiah's words are written with this new reality in mind. Those same words paint a picture of God's new kingdom in the midst of this changed landscape. So Jesus stands among his neighbors in the synagogue and reads a familiar passage declaring that the text is pointing to him and his commission. As one translation, the voice translation reads, The Spirit of the Lord, the Eternal One, is on me. Why? Because the Eternal designated me to be his representative to the poor, to preach good news to them. He sent me to tell those who are held captive that they can now be set free and to tell the blind that they can now see. He sent me to liberate those held down by oppression. In short, the Spirit is upon me to proclaim that now is the time. This is the jubilee season of the Eternal One's grace. My friend and colleague Heather Shortledge points out perhaps the most interesting word here is captive. From the Greek word meaning spear. Literally those who are speared. Also, the word for oppressed is only used once in the New Testament. It translates as shattered. I wonder who in Jesus' congregation that day feels speared or shattered, captive or oppressed. They worship freely, sort of. Rome is always there, though, lingering around every corner and eavesdropping on every conversation even in a small, insignificant backwater town like Nazareth. And they respond initially with joy to the hometown kid's sermon. You can almost hear them patting him and themselves on the back about what a fine man he has become and what a fine job they have done in raising him as part of this community. Everything is cozy and chummy, a real feel-good moment. They're all set to head to coffee hour and continue the conversation over punch and donut holes when Jesus' sermon takes a decidedly different turn. He just cannot leave well enough alone. 
He goes on to riff on other familiar stories from scripture. He lifts up a story about the prophet Elijah and his caring for a widow and her son. The widow, you may recall, is from Sidon, the home turf of Elijah's fiercest enemy, Jezebel, the queen who commanded hundreds of prophets and worshipped Baal. Jesus points out that the widow, the outsider, the foreigner, is the one who is fed in the thick of famine and whose son is healed. And if that wasn't enough, Jesus reminds them of the story of Naaman, the Syrian, again, an outsider and a foreigner who is healed when the prophet Elisha leads him to wash in the waters of the Jordan. Jesus can't leave well enough alone. And now in the span of one verse, the congregation is not just miffed or ruffled, but filled with rage. Enough rage to fuel their drive to pitch him off a cliff. In other years, this text has sounded a bit over the top, cartoonish even. Today, the image is all too realistic. We have seen rage like this in vivid technicolor on replay over the past 10 or so days. The rage expressed in the Capitol on January 6th drove men and women, children of God, one and all, to trample, threaten, and pummel other children of God. Anger and resentment that have been bubbling and simmering for decades, even centuries, boiled over in a terrifying way. And this rage has been fueled by leaders who perhaps do not fully grasp the power of their words or the depth of the pain and hatred that spears and shatters those who are consumed by it and those they turn on in response. In the midst of the rage in Nazareth that day, Jesus' neighbors, children of God, one and all, React to his words about God's kingdom, including more than them, about Jesus' commission extending beyond the bounds of their community with deep rage. Is it that they cannot keep him and his power for themselves that sends them into such a fury? Is their rage actually grief that this long-awaited, long-longed-for coming kingdom might not match their dearly treasured expectations? Following this text, Jesus heads to Capernaum. They try to prevent him from leaving there, too. Luke does not tell us that the people there become enraged, but it does seem that holding on tightly to Jesus is not an unusual reaction to the work and wonders he offers. Everyone wants to hold on tightly to Jesus, it seems. At the end of our passage for this morning, we hear that at the edge of the cliff, Jesus somehow passes in the midst of them and goes on his way. Some scholars mention that this may be hinting at a supernatural act, but Luke says it so matter-of-factly that I wonder if it isn't something more straightforward. Could it be that they do not see Jesus disappear because they are too consumed by their own rage? 
Could it be that Jesus slips through their fingers because they have tried to clutch him too tightly for themselves? I've often shaken my head at Jesus in this text. Why do you have to stir them up, Jesus? Why do you have to poke the bear by answering questions no one is asking, at least not out loud, at least not yet? Why can't you leave well enough alone? But that's just it. What I might define as well enough is not good enough for the kingdom of God. The captive ones, the oppressed ones, are not contained in Nazareth any more than the shattered and speared are found only in Camp Hill. Jesus comes to help and heal the world, the entire world, a world where many churches and small businesses are boarded up this morning and over the next few days because of credible threats of violence. The kingdom of God does not only include everyone who looks like me or thinks like me or agrees with me, nor does that kingdom exclude them. That may frustrate me, sadden me at times. I confess it enrages me on occasion. And just and righteous anger can be, can be a good and holy thing. Even Jesus gets angry. But when my anger leads me to decide that only a select few are worthy of life, love, and freedom, it is no longer holy or righteous if it ever was. Jesus is not mine to box in or hold in my clutches for my own private salvation. If I want to follow where Jesus leads, if I claim to be any part of this new kingdom, he is still bent on shaping in the midst of this oh-so-broken world. I cannot insist that he stay within my box or within my grasp. I cannot hold him too tightly. If I do, I might... Just miss him. And so, by the grace of God, I need to find a way to hold Jesus loosely, trusting that he will never let go of me. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.